Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. All right, all right, all right. Here we go. Truly the premiere of the Talent Tank fall season. We got a uh, James Cantrell on here today. James, how you doing, man? Pretty good, buddy. How are you doing this evening? Man, it's awesome. We we are so glad that we were able to flange you up. I actually hit you up in the spring and uh and then you didn't call me back for like a couple of days. And by then I had uh I'd i moved on to another UTV guy, which I mean good thing. Yeah, I know. I kind of missed that opportunity. I saw your call. I was like, ah, he just probably wants to chat for a little bit. I'll call him back from tomorrow. Well, a little <laughs> too late on that one. <laughs> we'll get on it. Yeah, so this past week, everyone just heard uh, truly a puff piece. It was uh, Puff Puff the Magic Race Dragon. He's from just north of you, the Indiana guys uh, up there. But uh, today we've got you. Uh, you're sitting in uh, in Kentucky. Where are you living in Kentucky? I think you're just east of Louisville. All right. Yes, yes, sir. I'm uh, just east of Louisville, about 45 minutes from downtown, about 45 minutes from Dirty Turtle Off Road Park, too. Oh, nice, nice, nice drop there. Dirty Turtle's pretty awesome. So that is your home course. But if anyone's wondering who James Cantrell is, because I kind of jumped ahead of us there, I really did. That was my bad, man, James. So I've known you since about 2013 in person, but I've known you on the internet since way before that. You are Ultra Four racer, UTV racer, rock bouncer. You huck your junk all the time. Your number, you know, race number number five hundred two. I think what you've raced, I don't know, six KOHs. I think the last three in UTV. Yeah, we ran four KOHs. Uh, we've done the last three in UTVs, and then the year before that, we ran the forty four hundred class in uh, the Colville car. And then you'd been out there though with like Mike Colville and uh, Casey Gilbert and all those Michigan guys, right? Yeah, we were fortunate enough to hook up with uh, Casey Gilbert and Colville back when we ran the old Trek series up at the Badlands. And um, we became real good friends with Mike and Casey racing through the Trek series. And they invited us to come out and pit for Colville and kind of hang out and check out everything KOH is. And since you're kind of like the, like the Johnny Knoxville of ultra four racing of just injuries and wounding and getting yourself hurt, like they couldn't help but be drawn to you and kind of like the chaos that ensues around the James Cantrell. Yeah, we met Gilbert at uh, the Badlands, first track race we ever went to, and we kind of started talking to the Gilbert brothers, and we became real good friends and started talking on the phone every day after that. And between me and Casey Gilbert, I mean, we both pretty much end up doing stuff that just shouldn't happen to a normal person. Well, he likes having you around would be my understanding, just because you take the heat off of him. Like, he's breaking his foot, falling out of cars, but you're literally, you got hurt wakeboarding this weekend. You've sliced your leg open or something, right? Yeah, I can't have any fun. Uh, I ended up cutting my wrist on a wakeboard. I, how you cut your wrist on a wakeboard, is, I have no idea. I made it maybe five minutes on the wakeboard before I hurt myself. You're a freaking clown. So, I, I, I mean, I've known your stories and known your antics, but uh, when, uh, you know, some of the people that kind of, you know, helped me out, advise on uh, this show, when your name came up, the stories just started rolling out. And they're just laughing. They're just laughing. And the longer we messaged about the stories about you, are like, He's a clown. Oh my God. He's really bad. Like really bad. Yeah. We like to have fun. I mean, we do stuff that you really shouldn't do, but we get away with it most of the time. Most of the time. So when we went to record tonight, 
we got started actually, and everyone just heard this start, but we actually started, you know, 30 minutes ago, but we took a quick break because we were maybe three minutes in and uh, a tow truck showed up to drop off a friend's pickup at your place. But you just had a tow truck experience of your own with your Dodge. And since this is like current affairs, you've got to run down one, what happened, the story with what happened to your Dodge, but two, the lessons learned that guys on the show could truly listen and hear like things that could possibly happen in the future and what not to do. So, I mean, that's, it's a big deal, right? Yeah. Oh, it was a major deal. It's turned into even a bigger deal after the fact, pretty much I was getting ready to take some equipment and move it from the house. I'd been uh, working on a pond down the street and had the excavator at the house. So just a typical Saturday morning, uh, back my truck up to the trailer, hook it up, move it down the driveway and park it in a spot where I load equipment at all the time. Walk back up to the house, get the excavator, drive down, pull it up on the trailer, get it in its position where I get all the straps and everything hooked up on it, hop off the excavator. And I mean, literally, as soon as I hit the ground, I see the truck, trailer, excavator take off down the gravel driveway. I mean, within a couple seconds, it was out of me catching it after chasing after it. It careened through my field, through my neighbor's field, bounced off a couple trees, took out some mailbox, and ended up in the ditch down the road about 400 yards from where it took off from. And the excavator and the trailer, they're fine. Excavator and trailer survived. I have no idea how the excavator rode it out. I was standing up there at the top of the hill just watching this excavator and truck and trailer careen through the field. I mean, I bet you... It was running probably 30 miles an hour when it got through the field, and uh, I was just waiting for the excavator to come sliding off, trailer to wrap around a tree, and somehow, miraculously, both of those escaped the whole ordeal. The truck was not so lucky. And it wasn't even tied down, right? No, the bucket was up, blade was up. It was literally sitting there running on the trailer. Oh, man. And it took off like it was on pow- under power, right? Oh, it took off like you just threw it in drive and stepped on the gas. I mean, I ran after it like... Oh, maybe it just started sliding down the driveway. Uh, there was no sliding. It was full steam ahead. So you get down to it. It's, it's now, you know, cleaned off some fenders. It's pretty, it's pretty trashed, pretty bad. And it's sitting there running and in park, right? Yep. Sitting on the road, just in park. Like nothing ever happened. Do you think it's salvageable or is it totaled or what's the status of it? I haven't heard. The frame doesn't look bad under my initial inspection of it. It ended up ripping the rear axle housing out of it. The housing looks good. It broke the leaf spring bed, took some body damage down the passenger side. Um, I'm going to have to end up fixing it, unfortunately. I think it's salvageable. I'll know once I get it back from Rusty Bray. Uh, he's got it down there just inspecting all the transmission and everything in it. Oh, you're, how far are you from Rusty Bray? I'm about an hour and a half. Uh, oh, that's pretty well northwest. He built all my transmissions for when I started racing the car from Colville to my trucks and everything. He does any transmission stuff I need. Yeah. He's awesome. What, what is his transmission shop? I, I forget the name of it. It's uh, a, Amco transmissions of Richmond, Kentucky. There you go. Amco. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a chain, but he's all, he's all his own. He's done that for 20 years, right? Yeah. For as long as I've known him, he's always been in the transmission game. Yeah, he's, he's good. He's good. No. Yeah. I love Rusty Bray, man. All, all those guys, uh, you know, Josh Wilson, all those guys kind of that part of the world. I forgot he was a Kentucky guy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you end up, uh, yeah, you destroyed a truck. And this is a truck that you ended up kind of like, was his last year KOH? Not 2020, but 2019. You like got stranded coming home and somebody came and brought you that truck. Like loaned you the truck. Then you end up buying the truck. Well, it's actually the truck I took to King of the Hammers. I guess this was last year. 
And on the way back, we uh, lost lockup in the torque converter. I ended up going down to Texplex and watching a couple of my buddies race down there, which that place is awesome. Midlothian, Texas. On the way home, coming through Arkansas, the lockup in the converter decided to go out. And at that point, I'm like, well, I'm about 800 miles from home. We're going to see how far this thing is going to go. So I drove it all the way. It made it about an hour north of Knoxville, which ends up being about three hours from home before the tranny finally let loose completely. Brian uh, Shelley, a good buddy of mine who actually let me borrow the truck, only lives about 45 minutes from where I broke down. He has a tow service, and luckily enough, he was able to come pick me up off the side of the road because I wasn't too far from his house and bring me another truck of his um, that he loaned me to get my trailer and stuff back home. Ended up buying the truck from him after I put a new transmission in it. Oh, right, right by that point, right? Yeah, I figured I might as well buy it now. I mean, I already broke it once. I might as well own it. So this truck, you know, what do you think you got to do? Just put a flatbed on it or? Yeah, I'm going to put a flatbed on it, get the body work fixed on it, put the rear end back underneath it, the front axle, it looks like it blew all the ball joints and there's no telling what else to the front axle. It didn't look too uh, happy when it was going on the rollback to go to Rusty Shop. And it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a big Dodge Dually, right? Crew cab. Yeah, it's, Is yeah, it mega? it's a crew cab, mega cab, you know, Dually. Yeah, it's just uh, destroyed it. Yeah, I destroyed it. And the bad part is I had it a month. Literally had it in my possession maybe a month and just absolutely destroyed the most. It was a beautiful truck, too. But that's kind of like your MO, though, from, you know, everything I've heard about you and seen about you. You kind of, like I said, I called you Johnny Knoxville of, uh, of Ultra 4, but you're also kind of like, like Pigpen, you know, like just, you just have that, that, the dirt ball rolling around you, but it's not dirt. It's just chaos. Man, I can't have nothing nice. Uh, it's the second vehicle I've owned that I've completely destroyed. I rolled a CJ7 that I'd built for probably about six years off-roading and burned it completely to the ground. After I think I made it seven or eight wheeling trips after I completely restored this Jeep and built it before I completely burned it to the ground and had to just throw it away for scrap metal. Oh, man. What caused that fire? A uh, rollover valve on the fuel cell didn't shut. I was... New, naive, and uh, didn't have my rollover valve uh, plumbed all the way around the cage and just had it running off the side of the tank and down the chassis. And when I rolled, I was on a little bit of an angle, and the way the Jeep was sitting, it didn't allow the rollover valve to close all the way. It was sitting there just clicking, and something ignited it. I don't have any idea, and once it went up, it was gone. It exploded like you see on fireballs on, like, TV. Oh, Jesus. Well, let's go back to your Dodge real quick just to recap, like, lessons learned there shock your wheels or use a parking brake or the truck was still in park, right? Yep. All the above chocker wheels, have somebody holding the brakes on the truck, uh, make sure the e-brake set, turn it off. A buddy told me a good idea too, is to pull the brake away on the trailer. And that way the trailer can't move at all. As long as you got a good battery on your trailer. So that's a great, that's a great idea. If you're parking on a real good incline. That, that isn't a bad idea. No, I, I never thought of that. Yeah. When it, when it initially went down, I would, uh, was, texting with some of the Michigan guys uh, kind of about like, what did you do when they said, yeah, that the truck was in park. I was like, man, I definitely load with trucks running. I do that, but I'm always, you know, emergency brake always on. And, and even that, you know, when you're loading a skid steer or loading a, a, a little mini, a little mini X, I think that's what you had on. It was like a little mini X, right? Yeah. yeah it was a little mini X. The little mini X, they weigh a lot. And you know, you get, you get them on the back lip of the trailer and it pulls the back of the truck up off the ground you know, that was probably just enough to make the transmission kind of unload a little bit. And then when you came back down on it, it just, re, it just engaged. It said, bye-bye. She gone. I mean, I've, I've seen people do that. I've done it personally myself, picked up the back of the truck and rolled a little bit before I realized what was going on. But, uh, this was one of those wild things I've never seen before. 
Yeah, I'd never even heard of it, but <laughs> well, I'm glad you were safe. I'm I'm glad you didn't run after it and you know get the trailer or the do you know the dualies you know uh, sideswipe you and run over your ass. You know that that could be very suboptimal. Yeah, I thought about it for a split second. I ran after it for about ten feet, and I'm like, man, this is a bad idea. This thing is going to take me out, and I just stopped and had to stand there and watch it cream through the field. Luckily, there was no horses in our field at that time. Nobody was coming down the road, so nobody really was involved in the wreck other than the truck itself. Man. Well, just shifting gears to kind of, you know, current situations outside of wrecking trucks, how's been that part of the world? How has COVID affected you guys? Are you guys back to normal up there? Did you guys ever really change from normal? Man, it's kind of been weird. Uh, We've been working nonstop like it's normal. Uh, Work's been wide open. Everything with that's been normal. Kentucky's been really strict. Our governor's kind of had stuff shut down where bars close at 10 p.m. You're at 50% occupancy and mask mandates and the whole nine yards in Kentucky. They've been really strict on the whole COVID situation. Since I'm an urban American in Houston, and I'm actually in the city of Houston every day during the day. You know, we've seen, I wouldn't say any relaxation of it, but it's, you definitely see less people wearing stuff now. More people are, I think the skeptics are out. The numbers have you know, come out enough times. And I know, you know, talking about COVID is way off, way out of the ballpark for having a conversation on this show, but I'm always, you know, curious how guys are really interacting in other parts of the country. You know, I just don't believe necessarily believe media, believe social media. And no, and it's totally weird. Like you go into like Maine, Louisville and you go in the Metro area and it's a totally different reaction to the whole COVID than what we have where I live out out in the country, as far as going into stores, the way people wear masks and everything. It's just a, I think it's a lot less um, reaction for people out here in the country than what you see in the cities. I just don't feel like it's real. Like at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't know. I, I know it's it's real. Yeah. I think it's a real virus because I'm pretty sure I had it back in December before KOH. I was deathly sick for like three weeks went to a specialist, went to everything you could think of. And all they told me was I had a bad upper respiratory infection. They tested me for flu, tested me for everything, couldn't figure it out. And Sure enough, I uh, come to find out a couple months later, this COVID virus, they call it. Um, I guarantee that's what I had. I'm going to blame it on you. you. Your COVID before COVID wasn't cool. I'm one of the I'm one of the carriers from KOH that got everybody infected. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did see you at KOH, but I definitely didn't get anything from you. I, I never, you know, had a problem. But anyway, man, so Simpsonville, Kentucky, just east of Louisville. You've lived there your whole life? We've lived here since I was three years old. I was actually born in Pasadena, Texas, which... Right outside of Houston. And then we moved here when I was three, and we've lived here pretty much my entire life. We moved out to Simpsonville from uh, the other county where I grew up, going to high school and stuff about 10 years ago, and lived here since. Your mom and dad, are they still up in that part of the world? I live with my dad. Me and him live out here with my okay. fiance Katie, and then uh, my mom passed away when I was a freshman in college. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, that was one of those tough things, you know, being a kid in college and stuff. It was tough dealing with all that and everything that came with the whole taking care of my younger brother and my dad and everything after that. I can't even, I know everyone's going to listen to this and the, like sympathy towards that or empathy, I think is the right word. Um, I haven't lost a parent yet, but, you know, my parents are getting up there. They're in their seventies and actually, you know, Kelly Kaiser, you know, he was my co-driver for a lot of years. He was a jab nasty, Matt Enix's co-driver for a lot of years. His mom is uh, currently kind of at the end of her days. And it's really sad, you know, trying to be there, you know, support Kelly and have conversations with him. And he's, he's kind of, you know, in, in a place that I've never seen him go. I don't know how to empathize because I've never had that feeling yet, but I know, you know, that's, you know, something that we're all going to have to go through. I just, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, you know, I know that was years ago, but still, um, 
Yeah, I appreciate that. It's it's one of those things, you know, you you never know how you're going to deal with it until it happens with you. And it's just one of those things you got to take and move on. We're all going to have to deal with it at some point. You know, you, that's a fact of life. You're going to die at some point in your life. It, it was rough as a kid. You don't realize how, how much people mean to you until they're gone, especially down the years looking back. It's uh, It was really rough, but you just got to keep your head up and move on. How old are you now? I'm 35 years old. I actually turned 36 Friday. Oh, happy birthday. Friday, the 25th. Oh, okay. So your your episode's going to come out, and in four days it's going to be your birthday, right? A little happy birthday, right? Yeah, yeah. Happy another birthday. day older. Yeah, one yeah. day closer to forty. It, <laughs> it's one more lap around the sun. See, it's a race. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's it. Oh man, so your dad? You know, uh, I know we did you know message about your dad a little bit, but uh, that dude he he taught you a ton of stuff, and he's pushed you a lot, right? Yeah, my dad's always been there. Um, we grew up, I mean, me and him, I spent a lot of time when I was younger going to work with him. He's been in construction his entire life and I'd always go to jobs and hang out with him. And then we started racing motocross together and he would always push me to be the best, uh, whatever I did growing up. I did, I played soccer, baseball, football, pretty much every sport you can think of. And no matter what I did, he wanted me to give 110% to it or not do it. If you're going to do something, do it all the way. And even doing that though, I, I know wrestling, like you're pretty legit, huh? Or was yeah, back in your prime. Yeah, well, I guess I was back in my prime. I don't know now. As I'm, good as I, I once was. About 10 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got into wrestling. My dad wrestled um, in high school and ended up wrestling for Ohio State. He ended up placing in state up in Ohio, which Ohio is a lot more competitive wrestling state than Kentucky is. I ended up wrestling through junior high, senior high. Um, my senior year, we ended up winning state. 13 out of 14 of us ended up placing in state. I ended up taking seven. Uh, we still hold most of the records for the state in wrestling as far as points won, most finishers i think we've got four or five records that still stand oh that's so cool though i mean i people probably listen and be like oh yeah we all did stuff no it's cool to go back and reflect on like where we all came from yeah and, and what brought us all to be in this like same kind of ultra four circle today and in the community like who did what and where and how all of our paths somehow crossed i, I think that's part of the show is that, that, that i like so much is finding out how I came to know this guy from Kentucky, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty much, you know, we all grew up competing some way or another, and it's just one other way for us to compete once we get older and we just don't want to grow up. Yeah. So <laughs> speaking of, what did you want to be when you grew up? When you're a kid, what would you say? I, I want to be something. I mean, I guess when I was growing up, I wanted to be in construction, uh, which what I ended up doing now, I always wanted to do follow what my dad did. Um, he worked for Walgreens. He retired a few years ago, then ended up going back to work for another general contractor here in Louisville. And I've just always followed after his footsteps. I went to work for him after I owned my own business, went to college for a year. When my mom passed away, I ended up coming back home to Louisville, probably went to EKU for a semester and then moved back home to kind of help my dad with my brother and take care of everything going on here and ended up going to Jefferson Community College, which is the local school. Didn't work out very well. Um, had an opportunity to buy a seal coating business from a buddy of mine's dad that I worked for during high school and ended up dropping out of school and doing the seal coating thing for five, six years, building that up pretty good and ended up getting my journeyman's carpentry during that period and going to work for Walgreens Construction, which is who my dad worked for at the time during the winter months and then grew into where Walgreens took up the full time, sold the seal coating business, went to work as a journeyman for Walgreens, um, doing a bunch of jobs for them, traveling around Ohio, Indiana, Tennessee, and did that for a few years and realized the road life really wasn't for me. I wasn't cut out to live in motels and hotels week in, week out. It just really wasn't my style of work. So I came back home, um, ended up going back to school, 
enrolled at JCC, finished the classes I needed there to move over to University of Louisville to study mechanical engineering. And you're close there, right? Yeah, I'm about 35 minutes from University of Louisville. Oh, I meant like close, like you've almost have your degree. Oh, I'm close. I think I've got 24 credit hours left. I'm I'm almost there. I took the last year off. I was going pretty steadily and then racing and work kind of took over to where it was so much invested in racing and uh, work got so busy that I just couldn't totally focus myself to the rest of the classes I had to finish right now. So I kind of took a break and I'll go back. It's one of those things I've got to finish at some point. I need to go back and finish my last 24 credits. I'm almost there. So it's no point in not finishing it. Well, you know, the ME curriculum, mechanical engineering curriculum, I mean, it's a lot of labs. So you, even though it's, you took eight hours, it's a lot of labs to get through that. Yeah. The, the hardest thing actually for me was Calc 4. Calc, something about Calc 4, I just could not wrap my head around. It just, it killed me. That Once I got through that, it's been smooth sailing ever since then. I love the ME classes because it relates to racing. I find a way to what I'm learning to use with what I'm doing in racing. My dad's an ME and I swear if you're around, you know, he's an engineer on a regular basis, like you see the mindset and you kind of figure out kind of how their brains work. Like it's a certain type of individual and you you exemplify it. Yeah. See, I'd probably be the worst engineer ever. Cause I look at the most simplest ways to do everything and the easiest way to make stuff work. And that goes against everything I've ever seen anybody else do in engineering. Over engineer. That's yeah. That's, that's how under engineer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need this part. We're just going to toss it off to the side. It, that's been said about you. That is absolutely. So you've got a younger brother though, right? Yeah, I've got a younger brother. He's two years younger than me. He actually has a seven-year-old niece. Um, she's awesome. She comes over here and hangs out all the time. She loves the racer. She pop in and go on rides with me all the time. It's one of her favorite things to do. So you're totally Uncle James. She loves James. going fast. Oh, I'm totally Uncle James. She She's a doll. I love her to death. We have fun. I mean. I got her in it young. Uh, she was probably two, three years old. She'd sit in it with my fiance, and we'd go ride around the road and stuff. And finally, we started going faster. And now she doesn't even like riding with my dad and anything we got around here because he drives around so slow. She gets mad and says, take me for a ride because you go fast. So, yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Man. That's trouble right there. Oh, it's going to be bad. I'm going to have to get her in a 170 here before too much longer. You brought up Katie Smithers, your, uh, your fiance, and then you just dropped her again right there anyone who knows you this almost goes against like human nature is is she okay she's great um i don't know why she puts up with me especially for this long uh we've known each other we knew each other for four years before we started dating i was actually played football with her older brother and we kind of me and her brother became real good friends and slowly surely after high school um i guess my freshman year of college we started dating and that was 17 years ago we were supposed to get married um this weekend but uh, with COVID and everything, we had to cancel our wedding and kind of postpone it till after the elections. We'll see what's going on with everything. You, you could have taken her to uh, Moab this weekend and, and eloped. I've tried. I mean, I've tried. Let's go to the courthouse. Let's just get married. But she wants the whole wedding deal, the dress, the party, the whole nine yards, which, I mean, she has earned it. She's put in her time for sure. No, that's awesome. I'm giving, I, you know, I'm giving you a hard time, giving her a hard time, but I do always, you know, like I said, know, you know, what, how we cross paths and, and the different places that we come from to end up being friends, but the women in our lives and, you know, everyone from, you know, if you like Lauren Healy's wife, Savannah, or, you know, uh, Tammy Campbell or, or Casey Gilbert's wife, or, you know, just as you go through every, all the dudes that were around on a regular basis at events, and then you look at their wives, most of our wives are very, very similar themselves. 
Oh, definitely. You know, I see a lot in Katie and in everybody's lives. You know what I mean? They all end up having to put up with us, and it takes a special person to be able to put up with what we do with Ultra 4 and racing and everything else. I think it's like superpowers. Yeah, I mean, she's a special woman to put up with me and deal with the stuff that she has to with racing and everything else I end up getting into somehow. And hurt and broke and cut up and... Yeah, she's actually kept care of me pretty good. She doesn't let me get hurt too much, but she's that little uh, person that sits on my shoulder and says, really, you're really going to do this? You think this is a great idea? And she's talked some sense into me a few times. What's the plan? So after COVID, after maybe, you know, you know, the theory is this thing all goes away after the election, right? You know, some of us, you know, some of us say that me, I'm saying that you guys have a plan, a backup plan. Uh, maybe when it starts freeing up, you guys go go down the church and start scheduling dates. Is that kind of how it's going to roll down? Uh, we rescheduled it tentatively for April 24th. We'll see um, if that date ends up sticking. Hopefully everybody can come and have a good time. That was our big thing. We didn't want everybody to show up and have to wear a mask and social distance and deal with all the stuff that's going on with COVID. It's, we want everybody to show up and have a good time and be able to relax and actually enjoy it. Uh, that's the same weekend as uh, Ultra 4 is having that race there in uh, Dirty Turtle. Weekend after, it's actually the Ultra 4 race at Rush. Yeah, we make sure I was we making it up. winning around Ultra 4 racing. Uh, I made sure I told her, hey, look at the schedule before you replan a date because if we're racing, we ain't having a wedding. I'm laughing at everybody that's right now driving on the highway listening to this and is like, is that my phone ringing? Oh, it's fine. It'll shut off in a second. Yeah. <laughs> of course it's yours. Oh, man. So uh, how long have you done the construction work that you've been doing today? You're a self-employed guy, self-made guy. You do all your own work, schedule all your own work. How long have you been you? I've been working for myself for the past six years. Once I quit working for Walgreens and went back to school, I started restoring Jeeps for a few years and restored a few CJ7s and stuff that we sold through Makeham and did that deal. And then slowly picked up back into the construction stuff to kind of give me something to do while I was going to school. And it slowly progressed into where we got busy. And, um, I actually went into partners with one of my buddies this year that I grew up with and, uh, me and him starting to do pool installations and getting a lot bigger in what we try to do. You're in excavation. You do asphalt concrete. You guys do rebar, tie rebar. We do it all. Uh, we do whatever it takes to make money, whatever we can do that day. Uh, we go out and do it. We've tried to move away from, a lot of the smaller stuff we were doing before all the handwork and stuff and tried to get into more machine work and bigger jobs. And we started doing pools this year and we're really hoping the pool business will take off with COVID and everything. It seems to be a great market right now. You set, set all your own forms. Yeah, we've been doing the fiberglass pools. Okay. That's what we'll end up doing mostly next year is setting fiberglass. We may do a liner or two pool or get a gunite pool. We've got a buddy of ours that sprays gunite. So we may end up getting into a few of those next year. We'll just have to see what next year brings. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm very familiar with that world. That is hard labor. Yeah, it's not fun. It's hard work, but anything that uh, is worth doing is hard. That's a fair assessment. So you've done that, you know, five, six years now. What made you start doing it for yourself? I've always just been kind of the person that's like when I left um, college after my second semester at JCC and bought my own business and did the seal coating thing and started working for myself. I realized real quick that a nine to five just isn't for me. When I went to work for Walgreens and started traveling and stuff, I'm like, man, this just this just isn't the path I want to take. I like working for myself. I like having to make my own schedule and be responsible for getting jobs, getting stuff done, and being able to take time off when I want to go race. Racing prep takes a tremendous amount of time when you're getting ready for a race, and it's real hard to have a real job and 
go into your boss, be like, Hey, I need the next three days off. My car's broke. I got a race. I got to be out this weekend. They're not very understanding about that. That's a fair assessment. I think you can go with that, which I'm going to tell you, you definitely have friends that will say he doesn't prep at all ever. So, oh, man, they Gilbert and them ride me so bad on my prep. And it comes back when we first started racing, um, Casey Ryan, um, my old partner I used to race with, we built the Cherokee together, started racing together. He was always hounding me about prep. Like he was on top of getting parts ordered, making sure everything was done, labeling bolts. I mean, he was a hundred percent prep. He beat that enemy, beat that enemy, beat that enemy. And then when he, uh, went away and I started racing by myself, my prep kind of got a little lax a little bit and stuff started falling apart. And I've got to the point now where I try to do a full prep. It's it's a lot of work yeah, when you really absolutely. tear a car down and full prep on even a razor. It's not like prepping a 4400 car, but it's still very time consuming. Just get one to stay together. No, man, I do. I, I do love Casey Ryan. He's a good dude, man. He's a he's a fun dude. You so you guys built that that Cherokee, and I think that was the first thing I remember you racing around that time period. That like 2013 ish time period. Uh, was it gray? What color was it? It was navy blue. Navy blue. And, and Gilbert's was gray. Gilbert's was gray. You literally, you bragged like, man, we built this thing with junk. Like Literally, we bought a bunch of used parts. I got online on Jeep Speed, and um, we got a hold of the guy that runs Jeep Speed. I'm like, man, we're trying to put together this East Coast car. We followed what the Jeep Speed guys do. We know you all are fast out in the desert. That's kind of the racing up at Trek. It was if you've ever been to the Badlands, it's a bunch of wide open, sandy, I guess you call it sand. It's more pea gravel. It is pea gravel, yeah. But it's rough, whooped out. I mean, it's a lot of high-speed sort of desert stuff, I guess you would call it, for East Coast. We knew following – I followed Gilbert and Josh Wilson and Mike Hallfish all racing Trek before we actually built the Cherokee and kind of saw what all those guys were doing and how fast they were. We made the mistake of taking um, – I had a CJ5 that I bought from a buddy of mine, a straight rock crawler. 44s, 37s, sprung over, about one inch of up travel. <laughs> Backbreaker. <laughs> oh, 100%. Well, we had met Josh Wilson at the first time we'd ever ended up racing. Uh, Dirty Turtle had a local race. We were like, man, this looks like fun. Let's go up there. And uh, Ultra 4, I guess, had just started getting big. I'm guessing this was probably 2012. They were supposed to have the Ultra 4 guys up there. Uh, a couple of those guys came down. Scooby, Rusty Bray, when he still had his Jesse Haynes car. He was there. Uh, we went and signed up. We ended up winning the V8 class, ended up coming in third in the V6 class. We're like, man, this is really fun. Like, we can maybe do something with this. And we ended up talking to Josh. He actually was there. Uh, Josh Wilson was there racing that Cherokee hat. I'm like, man, this thing is so cool. It's so fast. He's like, man, you got to come up to the trek to the Badlands next weekend. We're having an Ultra 4 qualifier. It's going to be an awesome race. Come up, bring the CJ, come race. We're like, we'll be there. Little did we know what we were getting into showing up to the Badlands and that little CJ5 with one inch of up travel. I've never, <laughs> I've never been so hurt. We went to the car. I went to the chiropractor two days in a row because I couldn't walk when we got home from that race. It was the most miserable thing ever I've ever done. It was the year that they had the Ultra Four qualifier back when they didn't have a regional races. They would actually do qualifiers for Ultra Four. It was the dustiest race I've still ever been to to this day. And, uh, we came home after that race and I immediately started cutting that CJ apart and like, never again, we got to do something else. And me and Casey ended up building that Cherokee. Was that the race where Bill Baird wrecked and knocked himself out? He had the bright, the Saturn orange IFS car and 
No, this was back before Bill Baird. This was oh, Smiley was the guy's name on Power Four by Four is all I remember by. But he yard sailed off the big jump where he jumped into the ball, and I mean yard sailed. He overshot it by a good seventy hundred feet. I mean they we come around. Now, granted, this is our first big race we've ever been to. We drop into the bowl, and there comes a helicopter landing, EMS, and everything. We're like, oh, like this is bad. I mean, the car was just in pieces everywhere. Is that what happened to Dave Smiley? Yeah. Yeah, it was a blue blue Jeep. Yeah, it was a full tube chassis car that he had. I mean, he yard sailed that thing like I've never – I still haven't seen a wreck that bad. Yeah, he's a good guy, too. That He's also a transmission guy. Learned a lot from that guy over the years. But then, you know, Facebook kind of took the tech away, and uh, here we are. Man, I miss the Pirate days. That's how I got into the sport uh, back in high school. Found Pirate 4 by 4 started following it, started seeing what everybody was doing out west, and it kind of took off from there. Man, you, you're, you're spot on where I'm at on uh, the interview with you. I was just getting ready <laughs> to go, what made you get into off-roading? Like, I know, like, you, you were into Jeeps and stuff, and obviously – us, you know, birds of a feather flock together and move towards this, this racing avenue. But what got you into just being out? I mean, already an outdoorsy guy, but how did you get into motorsports? How did you, were you a go-karter, motocrosser, what kind of, you know, three-wheelers? Um, I grew up, had go-karts, and then uh, go-karts progressed into dirt bikes. And um, See, I guess I was around 13 it's, years it's, old, it's started racing progressively. Uh, well, we started racing every weekend. Had a bad accident when I was a junior in high school. Ended up breaking my back and tip fib on a freestyle ramp. First time ever being on a freestyle ramp. Last time ever. Took a bad crash. Broke my back. Tib fib. Um, after that, I realized real quick. Uh, sold my dirt bikes um, and got into off roading. I was like, I got to do something else. And uh, bought a couple axles, some parts with the money I sold my dirt bike for for my CJ uh, seven that I had at that time. And ended up getting on Power Four by Four to find all the parts while I was just back, I guess, Googling and ended up coming across Pirate 4x4 and um, found out about E-Rock going on down at Jellicoe. I was the only one of my buddies at that time that had the driver's license, so we all piled in uh, one of my buddy's parents' safari vans, about nine of us, and rolled down and went and watched uh, the finals of the E-Cores. Let's say that was 2002. Oh, or I guess wow, it was E-Rock yeah. back then. Yeah. And went down there, and I mean, that was back when you walked behind the Jeeps. They were going down the trails, running through in between the cones. I mean, that was just the very beginning of rock crawling i mean teleco was still open then teleco was still open then i got i was lucky and got to go to teleco one time that place was awesome they had some epic stuff at teleco that i've never seen anywhere else i'm really really disappointed that place is no longer with us and then there were there weren't even uh windmills at the top of uh windrock windrock yeah the windmills at the top of windrock they didn't even exist back then no none of that was there that was uh, Jellico was the big thing down there at that point in time, and Black Mountain was still there. Harlan was just getting opened at that point. That was a good time. Uh, man, I love going down to Jellico back in the old E-Rock days. There were some wild times down at Jellico throughout the years. Yeah, like you can always, you know, YouTube the one night in Jellico, the Jellico Motel, and that's it's not a porno. No, it's not a porno. It is definitely a, a night in Jellico. That's just a typical weekend night in Jellico back then. Uh, just ripping it. So, I mean, you've been racing uh, a decade now, right? Yeah. Close to it? Close to it. That takes a lot. That takes a lot to stay committed for, for that long. I can't stay committed for that long. I, I, I love it. I just, the prep, you know, finally just wears out enough for me. And I, I don't think I love the windshield time enough to, anymore to drive to and from stuff as much as I used to. 
Yeah, me and uh, Katie have this talk all the time about what we would do if I didn't race. She's like, why do you race? It's so expensive. You blow so much money. I'm like, what else are we going to do? We're going to get a boat and go hang out at the lake and just sit there all weekend and float. I'm like, at least it gives us something. And all the people we've met with Ultra 4 and, and all the other race series, rock bouncing, everything we do are awesome. And they're all real good friends of mine now. And that's who we like. That's who we spend most of the time with now is people that we race with. And it's just a giant family. Well, I mean, I, I love it, you know, going vacation around the country and we always stop in to see folks no matter where yeah, you're at. That's, I mean, that's kind of how we're at with racing. We always use it as an excuse to do something else while we're on the road. Yep, absolutely. Well, just like you said, you stopped in Midlothian there at Texplex and uh, saw some guys running there. Yeah, that, that place is awesome. <laughs> now that bring it back up again. But so you're driver, owner, mechanic. You kind of do it all. You, you do all your own prep. You have any, any guys that help you prep? I've got a few neighbors that come over and give me a help uh, hand every once in a while. Casey will still show up once in a blue moon. He'll peek in and stop by and kind of sit around and supervise. He really won't pick up a wrench much, but he's really good at supervising and critiquing. Uh, you, you need those, right? He probably stands there next to your dad. Your dad does the same? Uh, my dad really, he doesn't really get involved much in my racing. He's always supported me in whatever I do, but he's not very mechanically inclined. Um He's great with carpentry, but when you come to mechanics, he, I kind of try to keep him out of the garage. <laughs> right. So you got after the CJ, then you got into racing Cherokees. Then you end up with a car from Coville motor city machines. I also am a former motor city machine buggy owner. I love that car. It was only a old XRA car. Yeah. hundred inch wheelbase. Terrible. Got it. It had air shocks. This was 2007. 2008, 2000, I think by 2008, we had, uh, I put our eyes on it, but I still miss that car. That thing would do things that would, was awesome. But then, you know, you put 39s on it. That was stupid. It should have stayed with 37s and should have stayed shorter. Should have never tried to go race King of Hammers with it. But, <laughs> you know, if, if all we have in life is butts, you know, at least we did it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I love that Colville car. Uh, that thing on the rocks was, it was unreal. The places you could put it, the things that thing would do, it was unreal. It was a billy goat. And then you put a big old motor in that thing. And I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But right now, so from there, you went to that car. And then from there, you graduated or downgraded or what? What would you call the move that you make when you went to Razors? I really wasn't planning on going to Razors permanently in the beginning. It was kind of, I'd just gotten rid of my Colville car and um, Cole Shirley had this Razor sitting in his house. He's like, man, you want to go do KOH? I'm like, I don't have a car. Let's go do it in the Razor class. And um, ended up, I raced it one race before that at Dirty Turtle and then uh, just kind of get a feel for it and brought it back here and tore it down and prepped it and uh, didn't know anything about Razors. I mean, it was a giant learning curve going to the razor from the big car. It's totally opposite anything you would expect with a 4,400 car. Well, don't go too far down that path because I will, we, I do want to talk about Cole Shirley and Mad Ram 11 and all those videos and stuff and how you guys are involved. But then you have gone completely viral numerous times that I've seen on the internet, viral videos, racing beaters. I mean like full send. You're like the, Who's the Canadian dude with the Canadian tuxedo and the mullet and the, that, that sends it on the snowmobiles? Oh, oh yeah. I can't think of his name right now. I can't think of it either. <laughs> Larry Enticer. He is Larry the Enticer. He just sends it. And dude, you, you, I've seen these videos of like a, a dirty turtle and I swear everyone who's seen it. I mean, how, how many times do you think that one video has been watched on, on any platform? Oh, Millions? Man, it's, 
millions of views, millions of views. Katie hates it. She absolutely hates that video because you can hear her in the very end of the video cussing. And she gets so much grief for that. And she hates that video. Every time it pops back up and I get a notification, it's been shared again. I always make sure to tell her, hey, your video got shared again. Is she the one that shot it? No, she's the one that you can hear cussing at the very end of the video. I'll have to link it on this episode notes so that everyone can, can go watch that video. So not, not, yeah, for, her, not for her. Her comment at the end is pretty funny. It's pretty hilarious. But yeah, you just, Jeep should be proud. It really wasn't supposed to. Oh, I love some old Jeeps. We love some beater racing around here. And really, the whole reason I'd sent it through that section is we were up there with Bill Licardi. Um, he was in town shock tuning a couple guys, and they were kind of rolling through the whoop section nice and easy. I'm like, I'm like, man, you all have to hit that. I'm like, I'm just going to go show them real quick. You can actually launch through this thing. It's not a big deal. So I came around the first time, kind of double, double, double through it. I'm like, man, I can go a little bit faster. Well, I came over a little step-up jump. I was running about 55, 60, and I was like, oh, no, I had done messed up. When it landed in there and it kicked, I'm like, this is going to be bad. And all I could think of was I have no helmet on. All I have is a seatbelt on. I just got to make sure I drive this thing out because I knew those tires were in the corner. And that was my biggest fear is I was just going to plaster one of those big loader tires. And I know those things aren't moving. No. Somehow it was all luck. There was no skill, no whatsoever involved with that thing coming back down on its tires. It just kind of landed back down. I kind of just drove off and we ended up wheeling that Jeep the whole rest of that day, just beating the brakes off of it. And that, I couldn't kill it. Ended up selling it to a guy for the motor after I trashed the whole front axle housing. It was bent so bad it would barely move anymore. And it was still running. That was one of the toughest four sevens I've ever seen in my life. When was that? That was about two years ago or was that three years ago? Oh man, I want to say that was like three years ago. Yeah. Shock Already. Jesus. Oh, shock Jesus. I think he's on a mission right now to uh, kind of your neck of the woods tuning people. Yeah, I think he was uh, out in Missouri and Kansas this week doing some shock tuning for some bouncer guys. Phil's a great guy. I got lucky. Um, when we were out at KOH, we took Mike Colville's car. I really didn't know anybody. We were just getting into the 4400 class and uh, showed up out there and Joshua West, Team 28 Motorsports, now CBM Motorsports, he grew up out here. He actually is re- grew up with Katie's brothers. They were real good friends, as small world this is. And Josh did all my tuning on the big motor we put in the Colville car. Flew out here, met us, went to the dyno, did all the tuning on it, got it ready for the Dirty Turtle race. Um, we show up to the hammers, and we're like, dude, our shocks are terrible. Josh is like, I got your guy. You need to come meet this guy. He'll take care of you. Phil didn't know us from anybody at that point in time. Comes over, is like, started looking at our stuff. Like, man, everything looks good. Like, um, let's go out here and see what we can do. Man, he worked magic on that car. I didn't realize coming from the East Coast back, I guess that was four years ago, shock tuning really wasn't a thing. People really didn't pay much attention to it coming from out here um, like they did out West. And once you realize the magic that somebody knows what they can do with shocks will do to your car, you it's worth every penny. And that's exactly what, you know, having a conversation with Josh Blyler, you know, they'd ran line mountain for years and years and years and years, and they just strapped on whatever came out of the box. And then Eric Miller shows up there and really puts in, you know, whooping on them and uh, they took notice. And now, you know, Josh is a big you know, purveyor. So it's kind of funny. The, the, I guess the circles or the, or the silos, so to speak, that we have across the country in different areas where there's different genres of racing and different mindsets and different things. And then, somehow we all start looking further and further to the West, like how they making them go that fast. How are they doing that? Not hurting, you know, like, and it's nuts. And like, I thought I had a good car, which I had a great car for when it was built. That car was seven, eight, uh, was about six years old. I want to say when I started racing it, 
But I went out and uh, hung out with Phil before Ultra Four Nationals. I uh, flew out there to go watch the race before the year before I raced it in the Razor and uh, went out to Randy Slauson's house. He lives in the same town as Phil Licardi. And he's like, come on over. I'll take you for a ride in the bomber and see what it's all about. It's not even on the same level. It's it's insane what those top tier cars will do. I thought I was going to die for the first 15 minutes of riding with Randy. Yeah, like you go to hit those first jumps or the first whoops or whatever, and like you pucker. Like you fully suck up half the seat, right? I mean, you oh, I, I, ended up pu- I ended up puking riding with him after for about 45 minutes. I mean, just got motion sickness in the car. You're hitting these washouts that are five, six feet deep, and he's just plowing into them at 70 miles an hour like they're not even there. And I'm bracing for impact thinking we're going to die. Like yes, the front this end of this death. car is going to get ripped out of here, and we're going to yard sail into these trees. And it just soaks it up like it's not even there. It's life-changing. That's what I got you know, when I first took my car out to Barstow. And the the holes that it would eat up was just, it changed the way you look at a race course. It changed the way you look at the trails. It changed the way what you could do with a properly tuned suspension was just so different. We thought we were going fast and we were sadly mistaken after riding with Randy and those guys. It's like, okay, like. Weren't even in the same this, galaxy. Like they were. No, this is. Yeah, they're on a whole nother league of speed than what we can go with this car. And I mean, we were driving it for everything that car had. And it was no, it wasn't a slow car by any means, but those top level guys like Miller, Randy, Jason, Tom, I mean, it, it's a whole nother level of speed. Which I go back to like the 08, 09, 010, 11 KOH years where East Coast guys start, had first started traveling out West. And then you go back and even today, go look at videos from 2009 of Jason Shear in that Campbell car that won in 2009 and watch him in the whoops. And it's sit back on its rear and it is just f- carrying the front. And he's look, us East coast guys showing up out there. Literally we weren't even taking a pea shooter to a howitzer fight. <laughs> I mean, we weren't even close. We weren't even in the ballpark and it was, it was just very, very stacked against us. Now, obviously, you know, it's not like that anymore. We're quick learners. We weren't going to get our asses handed to us for a decade, but, uh, but certainly this first handful of years. Yeah. We just didn't have, we didn't, had no idea what we didn't know. Ignorance. We just didn't know. I mean, yeah. we were just fresh. We come from rock crawling woods, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. And those guys have a little bit of desert ex- experience and that's huge at KOH. Anytime you got desert experience, that's a giant advantage when you show up at King of the Hammers. So what was the first year you showed up at King of the Hammers? Like 14? I want to say it was 14. We flew, me and Casey Ryan flew out, got a rental Jeep in Vegas and drove over and slept in Colville's trailer and first adventure. In that drive from Vegas, from McCarran to the lake bed is what? I mean, that's like a three-hour drive, right? Yeah, I want to say it's right about three, three-and-a-half-hour drive. But how many hours did it take you? Oh, we did it in probably two, two-and-a-half. I remember we were laughing so hard. As soon as we got off at Barstow, you start coming down that uh, road, and you just see all these trails off to the side, and, then, like, the edge of the road is wide enough for a vehicle. Well, we just dropped that rental Jeep right off the side of the road, and we're bombing through there at, like, 60, 65 miles an hour, just dying laughing, like – this is going to be the most fun thing ever. And that's what we always do. Like we showed up at Boone road and first time ever. And, um, we're like, man, there's, that looks like the passing lane over there. So there's a big line down Boone road to get into the hammers. So we're like, let's just go over here to the right. And we just started bombing through the whoops and that rental grand chair or that rental, uh, Wrangler. No. Well, what year did it take you like 12 hours to get the rental car out there? 
Like you got no, lost. Well, we actually made it to the hammers. Uh, we were sitting around. It was the night before the main race and we'd kind of been hanging out in town and stuff. Went up to the top of King shock mountain and kind of looked over hammers. And uh, we saw Mike had a paper map and we're like, let's go pre-run. Like, let's go see what this is really about. So it's probably about 11 o'clock at night. We're like, uh, first laugh's about, I think it was 50 something miles out here. 59 miles is back when they just ran out to the power lines out the old, uh, I think that was MDR loop Yeah, out around to the right and back around by the power lines and straight back into town. Well, back then, this was our first year there. We had no idea. I'd never been in the desert. I mean, I'd never been West of Colorado. So we're out there and we're like, let's just go run lap one. Let's go find the course markers, see if we can just stay on course and go see what this is all about. We're cruising along. Uh, I'd say we made it, I want to say it was mile marker like 30, roughly 25, 30. We got out by the power lines. And instead of taking a left and heading back toward Hammertown, um, some wind had blown up and blown down some of the course markers. So we ended up going straight past the power lines and headed towards Barstow. About six or seven hours later, me and him were looking at each other after going through all these bomb craters up and down these hills. And we're like, dude, we are lost. Like, we are straight up lost. And I remember coming in when we were coming in Barstow. Is that Lucerne Valley where all the lights are up on the hillside? I get them like at night out there. I get a little confused myself even. I get confused. But I remember that you could see these lights up on this hillside, the first town you come to after Barstow. And all of a sudden, we crested this ridge. And way off in the distance, I could see those lights. I'm like, Casey, we just got to drive those lights. Like, if we get there, I know we can get back. At this point, we're down to like a quarter tank of fuel, maybe eighth of a tank. It's like four or five o'clock in the morning and he's Casey's looking at me. He's like, dude, what are we going to do if we get stuck out here? I'm like, we're going to call 911 and tell them to come get us (laughs) and bring pizza. (laughs) Like we are stuck. We don't know where we're at. We're two idiots from Kentucky out here just running through the desert. Like we know where we're at. We ended up making it back to Hammertown right as Colville and all them were rolling the cars to the start line for the 4,400 race. Y'all are clowns. It was I, an adventure. I, I, I'll never forget it. I can tell you that. I'd heard tidbits. Uh, I'm glad to hear it from the horse's mouth, but I'd heard tidbits about uh, the adventure. And I was like, no way. Yes. Uh, knowing you, absolutely. It 100% happened. And then the next year we flew back out. Another buddy of ours ended up coming with us. Um, they ended up messing up in Las Vegas and giving us a brand new Rubicon four-door Wrangler. They have like 500 miles on it. Definitely got full insurance on that thing. It was the most fun we've ever had at KOH for a whole week. We just bombed that thing everywhere we went, up and down rock trails. Didn't put a scratch on the outside. The undercarriage, I can't say it was in the most pristine condition, but it really uh, it really impressed me how good those JKs really are in stock form. Yeah, right. Man, I did. I trashed a rental car out of out of Vegas once. It was a uh, we had a power plant that, you know, for my work, I had a power plant over in Mohe Valley, which is right there across uh, the border from Needles, California and uh, got the rental car. And it was, it was back when they had the, the pearlescent paint, you know, it was like the Cadillac pearlescent paint is like that, that tan off whitish color. I, I don't remember what GM it was. Maybe it was like an Impala or Illumina or something like that. So we get the rental car, we drive down to the power plant and, you know, I don't know what that is, an hour and a half drive down to, to Needles from Vegas. And, uh, but then going back, it's me and two coworkers and we're in this thing and you know how big the, the, the playa is or whatever the, and you're cruising and we see this huge dust devil. And I mean, huge, I mean, this thing's like, it's a mile across at the base and we're eating Dairy Queen. We got in Dairy Queen at the Needles Dairy Queen and we're cruising toward this thing. And this, uh, one of my coworkers, he's an Indian guy and he's like, 
He's like, you're not going to drive in that, are you? And I'm like one handing. <laughs> He's already mad at me for not having two hands on the wheel because I'm trying to eat my blizzard as we're going. And we shoot into this dust devil and it takes the steer, the, the windshield wipers and just peels them up. And then we're just getting blasted. Oh man, it sandblasted that car. It was not, it was like these new, you know, it was like the matte paint jobs that are cool right now. <laughs> the whole car was that way. And I'd stop to get gas before we turn in it at McCarran. And I'm like, oh man, this doesn't look good. I mean, this thing's, it's been sandblasted. You could tell. And no kidding. I swear, like God, it never rains in the desert, right? It rains just as we're pulling into the airport and the car goes in soaking wet and we get out, we get our bags and leave that thing. Gives it that nice, shiny press finish. Oh yeah, it looked great. It looks so good, but no, it was, it was matte. That car was matte because I drove it into a dust devil. Eh, rental car. Yeah, we had to stop and uh, replace a shock on the Rubicon on the way to McCarran. Uh, we blew one of the rear shocks off doing about 60 through the whoop section. We were cruising right along. Was just hanging off the back, dragging? We ended up removing it um, in Hammertown, but we were cruising through the whoops out and uh, going back to Chocolate Thunder and running about 60, and all of a sudden, here comes a three-footer. We hit that thing, went flying airborne. My buddy was in the back. He ended up hitting the roof and falling down. We ended up shearing the shock off of it. But other than that, the Rubicon was in great shape. We left there because we had never been to a trophy truck race. So as soon as the main race ended on Friday, we all hopped in the Rubicon and drove to Parker to watch the. Because there was those couple years when right? I saw. Yeah, you raced the Parker 425 that year. Okay, I believe. Oh, that would have been the year. Okay, so I don't remember what year that was. Is it 14, maybe 15. That was 15, I want to say, because 14 was my first year at Hammers, I want to say, and I guess that would have been 15, because the Parker race was the day, the after, day after KOH, and you skipped KOH to race the no, Parker. I, I started uh, uh, with Chris Summers' car. Yep, that's so right. So we, we went and qualified uh, for starting position in Parker in mine, left, we came, how did we do that? Oh, no, yeah, yeah, no, we, yeah, we left that night after qualifying, we came, we Started the race on Friday morning with Chris, got out immediately. I don't know how many, um, not even a mile, got out because we parted the night before, got in and back in the truck and went back to Parker for tech and contingency at the Blue Water while Ultra 4, the 4400 race was going on. And then, of course, we raced the next day at Parker. Um, man, that's those, those, th- th- those three years there sucked really bad. There was, it was hard when you had KOH on Friday and Parker on Saturday and you had qualifying for Parker on Thursday. It really messed up a lot of people. It was like, you know, I'm not a Rob McCachron, but, you know, Rob, you know, he was doing the same. You know, Rob was, he had big crews at both, but he was racing both races and having to go back and forth. So it was the having to have the conversations. And that was actually how I got it, the, the opportunity to meet Robbie Gordon because Robbie's like, are you guys racing that race that car at KOH? Like, that's tomorrow. You know, we were in qualifying, you know, like, are you guys going to race that <laughs> KOH? No, we're not going to race KOH and then come back here on Saturday with the same car. But, Anyway, oh yeah, yeah, small world out there, but yeah, those couple of years where they stacked up on the same weekend suck. I hope next year, you know, the the schedule gets kind of worked out. It's worked out this year, but I saw some stuff about score plus best in the desert plus KOH kind of stacking up on top of each other, and I don't know. That's so yeah, I kind of saw that weekend after weekend after weekend kind of deal with what I was seeing, and that makes you, you know, it makes teams and people and folks have to like pick where pick their battles and stuff, and, and that's actually a, a thing that you know, before we actually dive into racing UTVs and stuff, what, what makes you determine what races you decide to go to? Because there for a while you were in ultra four, then you go, you went rock bouncing for a, a long time and you had a lot of success in rock bouncing. I mean, these guys are the hill shooters and you're hitting them in an ultra four car and you won some events. 
Yeah, we ended up winning a couple of events. It was kind of one of those things where growing up uh, out here on the East Coast, um, we followed rock bouncing. I mean, that's kind of, I got in power four by four and then Cole Shirley with Mad Ram, him and Timmy Cameron had just started posting all those YouTube videos um, back in the day of like Fat Girl Wheelie and all that stuff. And I started following all the rock bouncing stuff, going to a few of the events. And I'm like, the more I watched them, once we had that 4400 car, I'm like, man, we can go do this. I'm like, this car, the way it works in the rock, I know we can be competitive. Show up to our first race, uh, blow the transmission out. It was down at Pump Jack Off-Road, super slick hill, blow the transmission pieces. I'm like, man, I know we can do this. Uh, so we go down and actually to the first pro rock race that actually ever had knockout racing. Knockout racing is probably my favorite form of racing I've ever done. It's the most intense thing ever. When you line up next to somebody and you're going to tackle a hill and fast to the top wins. That was some real fun racing. Um, we ended up being successful at that. We took third at our second Pro Rock knockout event. We ended up going down and doing another knockout event. Ended up taking second behind Tim Cameron, which anytime you lose to Tim, it's like, all right, I mean, I won. Yeah, I won because Tim has won <laughs> everything. Man, that dude, it's it's unreal how good of a driver he is. He's a wheel he, man. Front he's and a rear student of the game. And it comes down, a lot of it's his prep, a lot of it's his devotion, but he spends the time at the races. He is on those hillsides looking at lines, picking out lines, sitting there, paying attention to what everybody's doing. He's really, he's a student of his craft. He's always learning, always improving. He always impresses me with everything he does. And I was fortunate enough, I ended up beating him at one of the races. It's probably my, one of my favorite memories from rock bouncing is when we took the win down at AOP against all the big rock bouncers, that was when Clayton had just built that new IFS car and it was kind of its first year with it coming out. And we ended up having some good success rock bouncing. It was really fun. I, I really want to get back into it at some point. Yeah. When I watched Tim Cameron, like full wide, wide open throttle, pitch it into a turn and then he throws the rear steer on. And as he comes out of the turn, he doesn't like flip it right back. He, I mean, he's, he's, he's driving both front and rear axles wide open throttle through the whole course. So it's like, I don't know how he, do, I mean, and he does it so smoothly and swiftly. And it's like, I mean, it looks like, uh, you know, what, what is the, the Olympic sport with the, the skaters where it's the dual skaters, right? It's not a solo skate. It's the couple oh, skate. Man. And, and like the, the guy is doing one thing while the woman's doing the other and she's slinger. That's it's, it's like a ballet on ice and, and watching Tim Cameron do that with a front and rear steer IFS car, he'll shooting at, at a, thousand or 1400 horsepower who knows how many horsepower he's running today but it's a big dragster motor and he, he and it makes, screams screams and he, it's it looks so fluid and smooth and you know what they say you know smooth is fast and he just he makes it look so easy and you know it's anything but yeah he never looks like he's pushing or out of control and then you look at the times against everybody else it's like man how did you just put four seconds on everybody on this hill climb like, where did you pick it up at? And he's just, he's that good. It's That's an eternity, right? Yeah, and um, you're talking 45-second runs. Yeah, an eternity. So what happened to that car, that Kovo car, the the Motor City machine car? Where'd that end up going after you stopped hill, hill shooting? Uh, we stopped, we ended up, uh, I had a bad wreck at um, Race to Riches. It was um, Derek West came out here, Tom Ways came out here, a couple of the other Ultra 4 guys showed up, Jeff Caldell. We went down to race to riches at Winrock. Ended up coming off the hill, rolling the car real bad, ripping the motor completely out of the car. The chassis actually took it extremely well. After that, and I had, 
been out there and got to ride with Randy Slauson in his car. I'm like, I need to do something else. Like this car needs to get like, I know I can be competitive if I get in something else. So we ended up selling that car and had plans to build another car the next season. And that's when I kind of went into the Razor at the same time. And once I started racing the Razor, I really never went back to building a 4400 car. Yeah, it's fair. So Cole Shirley, Mr. Mad Ram 11. I've, I've known Cole since uh, a long time ago before he even knew what a video recorder was. No, I'm joking. I, he's always, I think he was born with a camcorder in his hand, but, uh, or a Sony handy cam or something along those lines. So how did you guys flange up? Just rock, just being at rock bouncing events. You guys got, you know, formed a relationship. He's a good dude. I, I have nothing but the best to say about him. How's he go from his razor? Be like, here, James, you start racing this. What was walk us through all that? I met Cole, um, Dirty Turtle had three bounty hills um, back when Tim Cameron still had a Showtime buggy. And they came up to do the three hills and try to conquer those and take the bounty and uh, ended up talking to Cole at that event. And then after that, um, every event I'd see him at, we ended up talking to each other a little bit. And then I, he knew I had the Cherokee and stuff, and we kind of talked a little bit here and there. Then I got into the 4400 car. We started talking a little more, and I showed up at the rock bouncing events. He started posting all the footage of the race car and stuff, and uh, we slowly became real good friends talking all the time. And I was at a little local race down at AOP, and he's like, do you want to race my Razor? And I'm like, sure, why not? Like, I'll get in and give it a shot. I think I ended up taking third that race, and um, after that, he's like, do you just want to race it at the Ultra 4 race at Dirty Turtle? And I'm like, sure, you don't have to twist my hand. I mean, anytime I can get seat time behind anything, I'm in it. It doesn't matter what it is, I'll race it. And one thing, it just kind of snowballed from there, and um, he asked me if I could film for him up here at Dirty Turtle. He couldn't make one of the events, and I started filming for him. Um, I guess that was even before I was racing the Razor. That's cool. So a little, little videography. We didn't know that about you. Yeah, I do a lot of the filming for Cole now. Um, I try to pick up all the events that I can get to that are local to me that he can't get to. He's he's really big into the motocross scene now with Reed and everything he's doing with that. So I try to – I don't have any kids of my own yet right now. So any events that I can be at to film for Cole, I try to show up and kind of get the footage for him so we can still keep the Mad Ram thing going. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, I had no idea. Well, I, kn- I know he's always got guys like submit because he can't be three places every weekend and and he's still just cranking them out. That's awesome. Yeah. What he's done for rock bouncing and whoever, you know, I, th- I think it was Nolan Grogan gave it that name. I don't know who gave it that name, um, but it, it, I still love it to this day. But uh, yeah, what his his videos are, I mean, people all over the world spend hour upon hour upon hour just watching dudes just smash their crap up uh up, up hills and then it don't work out you know they come rolling back down sideways upside down taking out trees crazy oh i remember when i was building my cj7 right after high school i remember watching the videos he started posting on him and tim cameron just going out and doing stupid stuff and man the stuff those guys are doing I'm like man this is cool like one day i will do this and it's like, we got to do this one, like whatever it takes, we're going to do this one day. And, uh, it's awesome. He's done him and Tim Cameron. I mean, they pretty much built the sport of rock bouncing. I uh, fully agree. I mean, there's, don't get me wrong. I don't want to few OGs, you know what I mean? The Bacons, West Keen. I mean, there's a few of the original guys that have been in it since the beginning. And the builders. I mean, like a Woodley or some of them guys, right? Yeah. Yep. No, I don't want to take away. I don't want to sound like I'm taking away from them because I'm not, I just don't actually know their names that well. Right. It's not, yep. not kind of my genre. <laughs> uh, like there's so many that I go way off the rails and, and, and say some, you know, like 
Oh man, that, that way way too many teeth or something like that, right? I mean, there's always a joke, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Oh, We're always with rock bouncing, and, and it's it's funny, you know. What I mean, we brought that 4400 car um, down to that race at AOP. Once we got it tuned from Phil Licardi, the shocks worked so good, and it's like after that, you kind of started seeing the sport slowly progress. People started paying attention to shock tuning, and I remember when Easy Rick Mooneyham showed up at a. At a race. He showed up down at Arkansas at the Ultra Four race and showed that showed out. He he was throwing and, down back in his car, and people were like, "What? What? Like, how did that dude make that do that?" So, and then Derek West, you know, what I mean, Derek West has been super successful in rock bouncing. He's yeah. won some really big races with his car. Yeah, and and then he's also then he takes the same car right out to KOH and runs KOH. So, I mean, they really are utilitarian cars if you can change your setup. Yeah, he's still he's taking that new car this year, and I think he's won a couple races and finished on the podium quite a few times with that brand new leading axle car he just built. Yep. So, how often do uh, does Cole get in the car with you? Uh, Cole gets in once a year, just at King of the Hammers. King of the That's Hammers. The only race he has any ambition of getting in the car with me. Other than that, he could care less. That's hilarious to me. <laughs> he cracks me up. He, he likes riding at Hammers. Uh, we have fun. I mean, he. He rides me that whole race always because there's always something leading up to the hammers. It's just, it's something with me. There's always preps that didn't get done, something that didn't get done in the whole race. I don't think we pre, we pre ran one time in the three years we've raced it out of King of the Hammers where we actually got to go see lap one of the desert. Every other year, there's always been something going on with the car, us showing up late where we've just had to hop in the car and go race. And he's always yelling at me when we get lost in the rock trails. Like, this is what you get for not pre-running. Like, this is the reason you spend the time out here and do this. <laughs> I can see him saying that. He'll yell. He'll get so mad. And I just sit there and just take it. I'm like, I can't really say anything because he's right. Yeah. But I just sit there and just keep driving along. But your finish rate's up there. Are you? Yeah, we finished finish this year. Out of We didn't finish this year. We ended up making it like. 130 miles in ended up breaking up front axle and spooners. And after that point, we had just packed it in. We just turned around, didn't feel like spending the night in the desert and came back out the year before we finished 20th. And then the year before that same thing, we ended up making it in outer limits and breaking an axle at the pinch rock. See, I, th- I really did. I believe you, I, th- I thought you finished this year. So that's, that's my bad. I didn't, I, I must've had 2019 pulled up when I pulled up the, ultra four points i did i, th- yeah, I did i, th- I wish we would have finished this year it would have been a lot cooler if we had got to finish um you always hate not finishing hammers every there's so much that goes into that race but it's there's some people that have never finished hammers so it's kind of one of those things that's catch 22 it's it's rough yeah no it absolutely is so man so while we're talking about koh right now what are some lessons man what are some lessons that you'd have for guys be prepared whatever you can think can happen will happen you cannot be too prepared for KOH. I always end up procrastinating and end up not being prepared and it always ends up causing issues. And that's one thing I've got to get better at and show up to KOH with a game plan and spend the time pre-running, spend the time shock tuning. That's a major one out at King of the Hammers. Your shock's got to be on point or lap one's going to be the most miserable day of your life. We made that mistake this year, broke a transmission during qualifying and uh, ended up spending the night replacing the transmission in the car. Luckily we found one from uh, Blake Vanderloo had one out there, um, but we had put a new shock setup on the car and never got time to go test it. So we threw all this extra weight on the car, take off the line this year. Um, we made it about 500 yards and realized real quick, it was going to be a long day. Every little bump, the sh- shocks were just bottom out. We ended up 
we limped her to pit one uh, where it's like take everything you can off the back of the car full stiff on the shocks run the preload up like this thing we're not going to make it another 10 miles at this rate we ended up limping her along pretty good once we got the weight off the car we ended up uh, i think we ended up coming through lap one at like 60 something place 65th something crazy like that and by the time we broke we were running up in the top 20. I think we were running 24th, 25th at that point. I mean, we were moving along pretty good once we got on the rocks. Well, you're a good rock guy too, though. And, you know, some of them guys aren't. I love the rocks. It's kind of what we grew up doing out here. You go rock crawling. um, You get in Jeeps and stuff, and that's kind of what we grew up wheeling in Jeeps and going rock crawling down at Harlan, Jellicoe, Gorge. Um, Spent a lot of time rock crawling, and that's one advantage, I think, especially us guys out east have going to KOH is where most of the guys out here are really good in rocks. We know how to retrain and be real selective with our line choice because out on the east coast, you don't have traction like you do out on the west coast on those rocks. So you got to be real selective out east at picking your line because you got to deal with mud and everything else. You can't just point and shoot like you can out west. Or trees, right? Trees trees keep you honest, right? Yeah, trees out hill are, are a killer. Um, they jump out in front of you real quick when you don't expect them to. They're fast. They are light. <laughs> An endurance race like KOH, what is your pacing? What's going on th- through your head? I know we all, we all strategize, right? A, B, C, you know, plan A until the green flag drops, then plan B is in place, right? What is your typical go-to? Do you prefer to be the hare? Do you prefer to be the fox? I mean... In years past, my plan's pretty much been get through lap one. I'm not that great in the desert. I know that's one of my weaknesses. Um, we just try to get through lap one, and I know if we can get through lap one and have a clean car, that's 100%. Once we get into lap two and hit the rock trails, we can really pick up the pace and start passing people. But the way the sport's progressed in the last few years, it's really hard to not run at 110% if you think you're going to win. At KOH, you can back it down a little bit and still have a shot at the win, but it's almost getting to the point now where if you don't go out there and run 110% checkers or wreckers, you're going to get left off the podium. The sports just progressed so far the past three, four years with the machines, the equipment, the amount of support people are putting in, the time, effort, everybody's putting in as a group. The sport's just grown so fast. I mean, back east, we run normally hour and a half, two-hour races, and if you're not 120%, you're going to get lapped. The pace is just, it's checkers or wreckers nowadays. Everybody just drives so fast and at the edge of out of control and the equipment's so good that you can push. Well, that was one of the things like, as we look at ultra four, what they've done to even try to slow down the sport a little, like, uh, like, like the removal of the, like the tire ball band, that was something to get guys to not use their cars, like battering ramps, the rocks, not necessarily for a, uh, to slow them down, but they're not banned. Technically. I still have some tires. I run with tire balls that are KO. They're ultra Ford legal 29 inches. Line That's a nice thing about a UTV, a 28 inch tire meets that. Perfect. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. You make, you make me laugh. Man. <laughs> oh God. You won at Reno recently, a year ago at nationals. Were you running 110% there? 120% there? Cause that's a short race. And you got lucky? wide open, wide open, uh, wide open. I, I don't know how the car stayed in one piece. Ended up going out there and my usual uh, Cantrell prep situation, Gilbert and all those guys. I mean, they were, I worked on this car all weekend. I mean, they literally rode me all weekend because I did not stop working on the car from the time we showed up at Reno till the time the main race started dealing with clutch issues, ball joint issues. I mean, they still give me major crap to this day because I broke 
one of my adjusters on my Keller ball joints, they were froze shut. And I'm like, man, this is right before the main race. I'm doing like the final nut bolt, just making sure everything's perfect. And they're like, I'm like, I don't know what to do. They're like, just peen it over with a hammer. I'm like, give me one. Like, that's not a bad idea. So I grabbed the mallet and I just started waylaying on this adjuster on this uh, ball joint to kind of peen the top over where it couldn't back out and just kind of wedge it in there. I'm like, well, it's, it's make it or break it kind of race. And it worked. And it worked. Went out there in the main. I think I started fifth, had an epic battle with Casey uh, Shearer. That was probably that was the most fun battle I've had with anybody at a race. We went back and forth for two or three laps before he ended up rolling, trying to catch me through the rock section. But we just come. He was way faster on the short course, but I was faster on the rocks. So every time we come to the rock section down the main straightaway, I just I had a line that I walked through pre-running. I knew that the car, if I was on this line and didn't veer from it, the car would skim it. So I just come in there every lap, set up to it, kind of pre-check and just wood it. And I just send it through that rock section every lap. I'm like, it's either going to stay together or I'm going to win this thing. And somehow, miraculously, the car held together. Yeah, man, Casey, uh, God, I love that guy. I wish he I wish he wouldn't have had that really bad wreck at Reno this past year that, that took him out, right? I mean, he. I think he believes he's uh, he's retired. I think he is retired. I think he's retired, too. And Casey was a great driver. Uh, he was. He's, is. We're still good buddies. Yeah, is, was. I mean, I love Casey. He's hilarious. He's a he's a great dude. Now, I am hating on him and Marcy right at this exact moment because I've seen social media, and they're hanging out in Cabo right now, and that seems like such a better place to be. You know, it's Lance and Renee and all, all them and uh, Larry. Uh, if you look at them, they look really smart. Once all those guys get out of racing, they take some epic adventures. It's like, man, is racing really worth it, or is uh, going to sit on a boat at Cabo for a week sound a lot better with that racing budget? Uh, what's your fiance say about that? <sighs> <laughs> On the hot seat right there. You're like, she, Oh, don't listen to I this. Know. I think she would like Cabo a little better than going racing, but it's kind of one of those things. It's, that's what we do. I mean, that's how we spend our, any free time we have is racing. Again, you're preaching to the choir. I did it for a very long time. You know, I mean, the more, the more and more talent tank I put out, the, the more and more I miss it more. I think that's why I'm still doing this is because I'm living vicariously through you guys that are a solid, you know, eight, nine, 10 years younger. And I remember where I was, you know, eight, nine, 10 years ago, like I, I couldn't get it out of my system, like hard enough. It didn't matter. Like it didn't matter how, how bad I tore the car up and how many hours I had to work in the shop by myself. It was for that next event is for that next rush. Yeah. It's just one of those things. It's like, once you start doing it, you can't stop. It's, it's the worst. I tell people it's the worst drug you could ever do. It's, it's once you get it in your blood racing with what we do, the off-road community, it's, it's so hard to stop. Yeah, no, f- fully. So, Hey man, let's talk about the future. Talk about where we're going. Where, where are you going? You going to focus on building this empire? You know, are you gonna be the concrete man of, uh, Eastern Kentucky there or what's, uh, we're, we're going to push the pool. We're going to push the pool business really good for the next year. Uh, I'm still going to do racing, um, that's my end game, really hoping to, I mean, that's everybody's end game that gets in the sport. I mean, you eventually hope you can get this paid for, and that's all you got to do is be a professional racer. But we're going to push real hard next year to try to grow the company and get bigger and um, kind of see what we can go with it. Yeah, hey, get more guys under you so they're keeping making money while you are out racing, being a race car driver? Yeah, that's the key. It's just, man, it's so hard to find skilled labor these days or anybody that wants to work. That's, it's... It's, I have this it's conversation nationwide. with people all the time. It's nation, like you said, it's nationwide. This is a good 
conversation about Gilbert, Casey Gilbert, and, you know, their business up there in Michigan. And, you know, I partner on a concrete company down here in, in South Texas. And our labor is, you know, our skilled labor is Hispanic. And that's, that's it. You know, you don't find, you know, our truck drivers, our concrete, you know, cement truck drivers, they'll be uh, black guys, white guys. Uh, there's really no rhyme or reason. I mean, they're kind of everywhere, equal opportunity. Uh, but when it comes to the trades themselves, we're heavily Hispanic. Well, Casey is like, Hey man, I'm just going to come down there with like a van. Can I just like go to like home Depot and like get a bunch of them and then come back and finish concrete? <laughs> I'm like, yes, you could, but they wouldn't be able to finish concrete. You know, they, they're unskilled, you know, they're untrained laborers or unskilled laborers. Yeah. So that was interesting to me that that far North, yeah, that they're not up there uh, versus here. You can't hardly find anyone in the concrete asphalt paving any part of that world that isn't a Hispanic trade. And those guys, you got to support them. I mean, the, the guys that are the finishers, the guys that finish concrete and how smooth they get it and how flat and level they get it. And they do it without a machine. They do it by eye and you know, they will, they will make a slab, you know, you're doing a slab on a house or a driveway or whatever it is. And they will drop down there two dudes and a two before, and they will have this thing like, is flat it's, it's super impressive when you watch, I mean, anybody, you know, any skilled labor like that, it's concrete works, rough work. And oh, those man. guys make it look so easy. I mean, and they do drip pouring big slabs and they just keep rocking through it. Like it's nothing. I get on that screed board and after 10 minutes, I'm like, I need a break. Like somebody tag in. Somebody come get this. Rough. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you rarely do 600 and 700 yard pours on a house. And uh, I mean, those big, big houses and these guys, we'd start it you know, four or five in the morning and we'd finish it, you know, four or five in the afternoon and pour it all day. And they just killed it all. I mean, just all day long. And then talk to Casey and, you know, I'll, I'll see his stuff. Like he's building the house right now and how they were having to hand pull concrete in the basement, like pull it, you know, with, with a, you know, hose or whatever from one end to the other, because they didn't have a pump long enough to get it over there. And I'm like, Oh my God. I mean, a, a shovel load of concrete's heavy oh it's no joke and trying to do concrete i mean when you're screeding and raking after a couple hours i mean that stuff will wear you down quick i don't care what kind of shape you're in yeah if you don't do that kind of work every day it's gonna it's gonna break you quick whoop your ass so college i'm, I'm gonna be one of the guys that gets to you know i'll call you every couple months and be like dude you get enrolled hey how's class you need to stay on yeah. it I'm hoping to get back in. I probably won't go back in this fall, but I'm hoping in the spring we'll have things lined out where I can get back in and try to at least knock out a couple more classes. Yeah, that's it's one of my it's my dad's out. number one thing is no matter what you got to finish college. Like that's the only thing he rides me on. No matter what you do, you got to finish college. I mean, I think it'll pay dividends. I, I don't know if college isn't for everyone. It absolutely isn't. You know, there's people that you know it's just not the right thing. But uh, knowing you and knowing how smart you are, I don't know if you would necessarily apply the your degree. But the fact is it's a really awesome thing to be able to show and prove that you have gone out in the world and proven that you have the ability to learn. And it wasn't, you went and got a secondary education certificate. It's literally, you have a mechanical engineering degree and that's, that's a, that's a big one. Yeah. And that's my dad says the exact same thing that you just said there. And there's a lot of truth to that. It's no matter what, it's something you can always fall back on. I will actually throw that out. That's, that's exactly, I actually say that saying quite a bit and it came from my mom. My mom, she would say, you need a skill. You need a skill that you can fall back on. And mine ended up being welding. And, you know, I still weld once a week on something somewhere. I'm always breaking, you know, at the shop next thing you know, the welders out, you know, it's like if, if every problem's a nail, you have a hammer, 
It's, I swear, if you have a if you have a welder, every problem can be welded, and uh, and yeah, it's a skill set. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much beer and, uh, and and grace I've earned through life because I, I knew how to weld, but I don't do it professionally. I don't do it for a day job. I've never had a, one of my welds X-rayed, anything like that. Those guys that do that stuff are yeah, those guys are seriously skilled. I mean, uh, the way I see it, my welds hold. Um, they may not be the most prettiest thing in the world, but they don't fail. They're rec tested. Yeah, they are rec tested 110% multiple times. Well, man, Mr. James Cantrell on the talent tank. Did we cover everything you wanted to cover today? Man, I think we pretty much went over everything. It's a good experience. It is awesome, man. I really appreciate you having me on here and taking the time to talk with me. I can't say enough about all the guests that I've had on, but yes, especially, you know, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you for sharing your story with everybody you know, in our community, you know, people see your name on the entrance list. Uh, they, they don't necessarily know, you know, like who's this guy from Kentucky or how did he end up in UTV or, or all that. And some of us, we've known you for a decade and we know how committed you are to the sport and how involved you are in the sport and how Lily you will give like the shirt off your back or, you know, I'd say you give like a, you know, if somebody needed a spare tire off their trailer, but I know that wouldn't be you because you would need every spare tire you could possibly ever load into a trailer just to get to an event. Oh man, my trailer issues over the years, it's been one of those things that no matter what I do, I can put four brand new tires on the trailer and I'm going to blow one going to a race. That's where I, we've got a running joke going right now with me and Casey and Casey. Um, I've got a tire on my trailer that's been on there. I think I want to say it's going on six years now. This, I'm telling you why, this trailer tire is perfectly smooth. There's not a lick of tread left on it. And we've got a bet going to see how long this trailer tire lasts. It's one of those things where I want to change it, but at the same time, we want to see how long you can actually run on a ball trailer tire. And you probably you probably had the month of September on the bet, and that's why you didn't go to Moab, because you didn't want to blow up between here and Moab and have to pay those guys. Oh, no, they're saying it's going to run until, like, next year. They're saying it's still got a long way to go. I'm like, man, any day now, this trailer. I always keep a spare in my truck because I know any day that thing's good. It's going to go, but it keeps rolling. It's one of those, I don't get it. But I guess it really doesn't have any holes or cuts. It's just smooth like a race car tire. Less drag. uh, Yeah, less drag, a little more efficient on fuel mileage. (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea. Well, I'm disappointed to hear that – uh, you won't be racing Moab this weekend, but you know, because of that, it allowed us to sit down and, uh, and tell your story, man. Yeah, man. I'm really disappointed. I don't get to make it to Moab. Um, life happens. You know, it's one of those things where I just got stuck here in Kentucky. I'm not able to make it. Uh, Moab's an awesome place. And I know it's going to be an awesome event. Ultra four being out there. It's going to be really cool, but you'll be at Oklahoma, right? I a hundred percent will be at Oklahoma for nationals. Well, I'll see you there. We'll drink a beer or two together. Hey guys, thank you for, uh, for joining in, listening to uh, James Cantrell. James, thank you for uh, coming on the Talent Tank, man. Thanks for having me, Wyatt. It's a good time. All right, we'll catch you guys next week. We're out. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like to listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the Talent Tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.